Thank you all so much for having me again. Um, as David was saying, I'm Keaton from across the street. Um, and I just want to let y'all know that uh, Zion Prez loves this church so much. Um, we rejoice with you as uh, fellow faithful churches doing the work of ministry. We love y'all so much, and we love your pastor, especially. He's been such a blessing to me, um, and I'm so excited that you have David here now. Um, I'm excited to, to, to spend some time with him in particular. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, uh, we're going to be looking today at Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 15 and going all the way through chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, that is Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 15. And just a little bit of context before we kind of jump right in here. Here's what's going on. Uh, Paul is writing to this church in Asia Minor. And uh, he writes a little bit of a, of a general letter. But what he's seeking to do is to paint this glorious picture of the reality that Christ Jesus is redeeming all of creation. Uh, and he's going to do so in, in a pretty incredible way. And so Paul's main point for us to see here this morning, he wants us to know God by seeing the gift that is Christ. But what Paul is going to do in calling us to know God and the gift of God in Christ, what he's actually going to call us to do, he's going to paint such an unimaginably glorious picture of the work of Jesus that he's saying, you're not going to believe how unbelievably awesome this is unless the Spirit does a work in your heart. It's unimaginably glorious. We're about to take up and read God's Word, but before we do, let us ask for the Holy Spirit's help in prayer. Gracious Lord, we thank you that... You have given us the gift that is Christ, crucified and raised on our behalf. Lord, this picture is too glorious for us to even begin to fathom. A story too good for us even to begin to hope that it's true. Yet, oh God, it is. And so we pray, oh Lord, that you would give us this day your spirit, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of our Lord from Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe 
according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He's put all things under His feet and gave Him as a head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and preaching of it. So, to begin with, Paul opens up. He's just kind of expounded uh, the spiritual blessings in Christ in this very Trinitarian text from uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. But then he launches in to point to the Ephesians themselves. And he like, he like bursts forth with, you know, excitement. You, you can almost see Paul like on the edge of his seat, writing this out on behalf of the Ephesians. And he's saying, you know, I, I've heard how it is that you operate, O church of Ephesus. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints. And here's what I do. I never stop giving thanks for you. And here's how I do it. I do so by praying. But let me let me let you in on the sort of prayer that I'm praying. Out of thanksgiving for you, he, here's what I'm praying. I want you to know God. I, I want you, by the Spirit of God and the wisdom of God, to know God. And here's how. I want the eyes of your hearts to be enlightened. But then from there, he launches into it because he's saying, he's saying here is this unimaginably glorious picture. It, it's by far the greatest thing you've ever heard in your life. And if somebody were to tell you this story, you would probably be apt to say, I can't believe it because it's too good to be true. And so Paul is saying, here's what I'm praying for you. I see your goodness. I want the Spirit to open the eyes of your hearts that you might see the glorious gift that is Christ Jesus. 
And he's going to do this really in a few different ways. First, he shows us the gift of hope itself in verses 18 and 19. And he lays out for us there three things in particular that are building and crescendoing to the end of verse 19. But he opens up by saying, you know, I want you to have the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which you've been called. There's this direction here that that Paul is getting at. I I want you to, to know the hope to which God has called you. Uh, He's calling us and he's saying, here's this reality, point one, you're not who you once were. You're not where you once were. You, You were once dead in your trespasses and sins, but God has called you out of that and he's called you into something absolutely glorious. He's called you out of sin and death and he's called you into himself. That's amazing. That the Creator God doesn't leave us in our filth, but says, I'm bringing you to me. We uh, love stories uh, of rags to riches, don't we? Uh, if, yeah, and I assume in a place like this and in a time like this, we have some folks here that aren't from here natively, and that's okay. If you're Californians, that's great. My wife is too. I, we love you. We're glad you're here. We wish you brought like Del Taco and in and out with you. We're sad about that. But everything else, we're glad you're here. Believe me. But if, you, if you're not from here, then you might not know uh, Tennesseans are, are, are in love deeply with Dolly Parton. She is the matron saint of the state of Tennessee. We are all from Dolly. And part of the reason why we love Dolly is Dolly's story. Her her story of being this little impoverished mountain girl who's brought out of the rags of, of Appalachia and brought into the glorious spotlight that is the Ryman. We love that story. We want that story to be our story, actually. God has actually called us to a much greater hope than that. He doesn't call us out of our poverty in Appalachia because we're unbelievably gifted at writing songs and singing. He calls us out of our rags and into this glorious hope. Why? Because he's gracious. Because he's unimaginably loving. Because he's a God who gives himself for the good of others. This is a a glorious picture of the God who brings us out of our fallen sinfulness and calls us to himself. Our question, though, this morning is, do we see it? I'm afraid all too often that the Christian life, we fail to see the glory of this reality. God has called us to himself. But then next, he he moves forward. He, he, He wants us to also not only see the hope to which Christ has called us, but he he moves on to the next part in in verse 18. What are the riches 
of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Why have hope? Here's why we have hope. Because of what you are by union to Christ. There are a couple of interpretive options here with this. Both can be true, and both are deeply biblical. In one sense, the first kind of option for understanding this, what are the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints? Uh, uh, The first thing that we could say is that God does a powerful work in you. Why? Because you're his inheritance. The author uh, of the Psalms will write quite a bit, Psalm 106, that his inheritance is his people. That's unbelievable. The God who has created all things, what is the most glorious thing that he could give to his son? A people. Redeemed. That's the first option. The second option that we could have uh, in, in this is, what's this glorious inheritance talking about? Because, why would God give this inheritance? Because God receives glory by giving us an inheritance. And the greatest inheritance he could possibly give us is himself. The, the riches of God's glory is that he has made us holy. He's taken that which is deeply, deeply sinful and united us to his son and washed us and cleansed us. He's given us himself. This is a glorious reality that we who have run from God, God has come to us and he's given himself to us and for us to the uttermost. That's what redemption looks like. But this builds even further. Paul's case is crescendoing upwards to this final point as he's building out this picture of the glorious hope that is the gift of Christ. He says this, and what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. The immeasurable greatness of God's power towards believers. Translators royally struggle to figure out how to to capture the bigness of verse 19. The the immeasurable greatness, the, the unbelievable power that is God working in believers. The magnitude here is something that are almost too big for words. And Paul wants us to see and be completely and utterly overwhelmed by the most powerful force in the world, and that is God's work in believers. Think of one of the beauties of especially cameras and video today is that we're able to capture things visually and preserve them over time. And two, two events that, that are, are just unthinkable as you watch them unfold, the sheer power of what's going on, uh, is the detonation of the atomic bomb. You, you watch it go off and you think that there is so much power and force going on in that atomic bomb. 
Uh, another one that we could think of is if you've ever watched the video of the eruption of Mount St. Helens, an actual mountain explodes. That's a ridiculous amount of force coming out of this mountain. And yet, as much force and as much power as are going on in those two events, these forces are infinitesimally smaller than the power of God at work in you to make you like Jesus. Those two forces, the sheer magnitude blows us away. It, but they are so much smaller than the reality of God's power at work in us. We, we could think uh, of the sheer power of things like tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis, and, and you can sit and utterly be awestricken by their force and their power. But here's something to think about. Do you want to see how God displays his power? He doesn't do it by hurricanes and tsunamis and tornadoes. If you want to see the power of God on display, look around the room. That's the power of God. That's unimaginably glorious, according to Paul. That God, rich in his mercy, powerfully works in dead people to make them alive in Christ Jesus. That's glorious. That's something that we can hope in. That's a gift that is unimaginably good. But he moves further. Not only uh, does he look at, at the gift itself, but he looks at the gift who rules over all. Verses 20 through 23. And so he shifts. He, he builds off of what he's just said. He's talked about this immeasurable greatness of God's power. And he says, here's something that that immeasurable power does. It's the power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And he fills out a little bit more of what that looks like. He, verse 21, it, the, this power, here's what it's done. It's seated Christ in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. He's painted this picture that he has raised Christ from the dead, sent his son, united him to humanity, died as a substitute, was raised from the grave bodily after the cross, ascends into heaven, and there he sits at the right hand of God where he rules over all things. He's filling out for us the, the sheer magnitude of Christ in his rule and his reign and his power. And that's amazing. That he sits on a throne at the right hand of the Father. That his name is above every name. That he is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's incredible. But that's not the main point. The main point is actually verses 22 and 23. And he's put all things under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church. We miss this sometimes, don't we? We think of Christ ascended. We think of Christ as Lord sometimes. 
We, we think of Christ as ruling and reigning over all things until election season, and then we get nervous. But Christ is ruling over all things, yes. But notice that last little clause in verse 22. He's head over all things for who? To the church. Hear what Paul is doing here. Christ has been raised from the grave and now is ruling over all for who? For his people. He, he seats, it sits at the right hand of God the Father, ruling all things, and by him and in him, he is for the church. I must admit, I have very silly concerns and phobias. Things that keep me up at night are utterly ridiculous. Um, you know, things like royally freak accidents. I, I, um, I have a strange claustrophobia. And so when I was, uh, we, we were about to get married, I, I had to buy a, a ring, as one does, uh, when you get married. And, but my biggest fear, I can't get a ring that will get stuck on my finger. Because if it's stuck, then I'm stuck. Even though it's just my finger, I'm stuck. That's an absurd fear. Another one of my absurd fears, though, is that somehow, some way, the church will wither away and die. In light of this text, that's a silly fear. The, the king of glory, who's conquered sin and death, who spoke everything into existence and upholds all things by the power of his word, rules for who? For the church. He's united himself to us in order that he might receive glory. He's ruling on our behalf. But Paul actually continues further. He says this, not only, not only is Christ the head over all things to or for the church, but then he fills this out. He identifies who the church is. And this is amazing. All things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Christ, in his infinite wisdom, in his infinite power, in his infinite knowledge, here's what he's done. He's chosen to rule all things, in one sense, by uniting himself to his church, which is his body. That's how Christ is spreading his kingdom. Through a church. Through his people. Through broken people like you and like me. That's how the fullness of him who fills all things manifests itself in this world. If you want to know the most powerful, most well-endowed institute in the world, it's not the academia. It's not Harvard. It's not Oxford. It's also not the White House or the Pentagon. The most powerful and well-endowed institution in the world is the church. Because the head rules over all things. Because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. But, but this goes even further. Like the, the church, which is Christ's body, 
which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Calvin will write on this particular verse. This is unbelievable. The highest honor that can occur in the church and is presented to the church is this reality, that unless he, that is Christ, is united to us, the church, the Son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect or incomplete. Here's this unbelievable reality that he who rules over all things says there's something missing if I'm not united to my church, to my body. Going off of this, the, the great Princetonian theologian Charles Hodge and following after him, the wonderful British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones would give us this analogy. As a groom is incomplete without his bride, so Christ is incomplete without his church. The one who needs nothing, the being who is self-existent, self-contained, eternal, infinite, reckons himself incomplete without his blood-bought bride. That's unimaginably glorious. That's unimaginably beautiful that somehow he who needs nothing looks to his people and says, I'm not satisfied unless I have them. Paul will continue on, though, in filling out for us the glory and the weightiness of this reality. Not only does he give us the gift of the one who rules over all, but he talks about the gift of being raised up with him. In verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and Paul presses home this glory. He, he fills this out. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He connects this section. Sometimes these, our, our chapter divisions throw us off when we take uh, the previous section, verses 15 through 23, and, and separate it from the reality of chapter 2, verse 1 and following. But Paul connects those two. And after having looked at that glorious picture, let's go even further into this reality. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of, of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It doesn't get much more dismal than that. The, the darkest picture anyone could, could paint is death. Paul is coming to us and saying, you, you want to know the reality uh, of the situation? You were dead. And not like Princess Bride, mostly dead. You were dead, dead. You, you were just like everybody else, running from God, living in self-destructive ways by the passions of your flesh, carrying out your own desires, being your own God, you were dead. But maybe the most glorious verse 
or glorious two words in the entirety of Scriptures, verse 4. But God. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached probably like 15 years through the book of Ephesians. And you can actually go and listen to the sermon online. He, he preached for 45 minutes on those two words once. One of the greatest sermons I've ever heard. Because here's the reality. You want the gospel summed up? There it is. You were dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. That's amazing. What's actually going on here and why I took this passage, which uh, very few people connect these two things together because there's just so much glory here. It's completely overwhelming. But what I wanted to show today was in particular this mirrorism that's going on. Paul is giving us a picture. He's laying out for us a, a, a beautiful picture frame and in the picture itself is the gospel in the outer frame, what we have is chapter 1, verse 19. The immeasurable greatness of God's power. And at the other end of this frame is chapter 2, verse 7. That he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness towards us. In all of this, framing up this entire passage is the reality of God's immeasurable unbelievable, unquantifiable glory and power and grace. But what's at the very center of it? It's the picture on the inside. Verse 20 in chapter 1, that Christ He raised from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And then chapter 2, verse 1, and Verse 6, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 6, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you see what's being painted here? The gospel is being summarized right there. Christ crucified, dead, and ascended so that dead and sinful people like us would be raised to life. And not only raised to life, but seated right now in the heavenly places with Christ spiritually. That in this moment, by the work of Christ, through His Spirit, through His union to His people, right now, His people are seated with Him on high. We've been united to Him in an inseparable way. And it's in that that God shows for all eternity the glory of His rich grace and His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The Psalms will ask a very pertinent question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? That is, who, who is able to dwell in the place that God dwells? This is a question that goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Who is worthy to sit in the place of God? 
right here, the Lord fills this out for us. The grand question of Scripture is answered in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. My prayer this day is with Paul that you and I would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we would see and know God, and that we would see and know the beauty of Christ who's unified Himself to His people, sits on the heavenly throne, ruling all things, and we sit with Him as He's united Himself to us. He's brought us out of death and brought us into life. And that, dearly beloved, is good news and a glorious gift. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious and glorious God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these words only paint a small picture of a much and glorious reality of the power and the reality of Christ's work in raising dead people and seating us on a throne with Him. Lord, this is too much for our hearts to handle. But we pray, O oh Lord, that the Spirit of God would enliven and illumine our hearts that we would see the beauty of Christ on glorious display. That we would see the situation that You've brought us out of and see the glory that You've brought us into. And may that stir our hearts, O oh Lord, to worship You in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.